Don't you love God's Word? I, I just had such a wonderful week, and I in God's Word, uh, exegeting these three verses, and I and I pray that as I endeavor to explain them to you, that you will fall in love too. So open up to Hebrews chapter eleven. We're going to be looking at the first three verses of that chapter. The story of a man who climbed up on the edge of the Brooklyn Bridge to commit suicide. A policeman saw him there and rushed over and tried to grab the man, but the man wouldn't be grabbed. So the policeman tried to talk him off the edge. He wouldn't come down, so the so the policeman said, listen, I'll, I'll cut you a deal. You take five minutes and tell me why you should jump off and commit suicide. Explain how meaningless life is. And then you give me five minutes and, and I'll tell you the reasons why you shouldn't jump off. I'll, I'll give you meaning in life. I'll, I'll give, explain the hope that you have in life. If at the end of 10 minutes, that 10 minutes, you still want to jump off, I'll allow you to jump off. So the man took five minutes, and then the policeman took five minutes, and at the end of that 10 minutes, they both stood up and took hands, and they both jumped off the bridge. (laughs) If you take God out of the equation, there's reason for hopelessness. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. No hope. The, the suffering and hardships and difficulties and pressures that we go through in life, really, there's no point to them. The purpose of life is kind of vacuous. And the only thing that we look forward to after death, if you take God out of the equation, is, is our legacy, right? What we, what we have done in our life that will live on, but... The teacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, even has this to say. The dead know nothing. They have no further reward. Even their name is forgotten. The 20th century existentialists at least were honest about this. Life without God. This hopelessness. Jean-Paul Sartre wrote, You are your life. Nothing else. Life has no meaning a priori. It's up to you to give meaning to your life. Albert Camus, another existentialist, wrote more more pointedly, the literal meaning of life is whatever you're doing that prevents you from killing yourself. So what's the antidote for meaninglessness? What's the... What's the, what's the injection that you can take for absolute pointed pointlessness in life? What do you do if you're, if you're hopeless? Where, where do you go? Well, the answer is contained in these three verses that we're going to look at today. And that answer is faith. Faith in Christ. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 3. God's word 
1 of chapter 11. God's word says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Here we begin, we enter into one of the most famous chapters in all of Scripture. It's been called the Honor Roll of the Old Testament. It's been called the Westminster Abbey of the New Testament. The Saints Hall of Faith. It is here that we that a believer should run to. This chapter is a, is a chapter that a believer should run to if you're discouraged. That's precisely why God inspired this letter to be written, if you remember. It was written to an audience of converted Jews that were beginning to teeter in their conviction, beginning to teeter in their faith because of the intense persecution, the discouragement that they were under at that time. Their life was hard. The reality of their circumstances were, was beginning to crumble in on them. So he writes about how the saints of old dealt with that same type of pressure by faith. And he starts by giving them a working definition of faith. If you look at verse 1, that's the famous definition we have of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, before we dive into that text, I think that there are two important things that I have to say. First of all, that is not a comprehensive definition of faith. It's not comprehensive. Biblical faith has many dimensions, and we're not going to try to be comprehensive this morning, but focus on what God's Word says about faith in these verses. But I think a second thing needs to be said, kind of teeing up the rest of what the sermon is going to be about. And that is, I want to describe several things that biblical faith is not. What biblical faith is not. First of all, biblical faith is not a feeling. Biblical faith is not a feeling. Have you ever made a decision that you prayed about and you felt good about it? And then you acted on that feeling. I hate to break this to you, but that's living by feeling. That's living by feeling, not by faith. Faith is not a feeling. Many Christians live by feelings. They, they doubt their salvation. They begin to doubt their salvation because they, they don't feel saved. Or they, or they doubt God's love because I don't feel loved. That's living by feeling, not by faith. Remember a few verses back in chapter 10, verse 37, we are told the righteous one will live by faith. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. Second thing biblical faith is not, is it's not positive thinking. Biblical faith is not positive thinking. Norman Vincent Peale wrote that famous book, uh, The Power of Positive Thinking. And, and that crept into Christianity through Robert Schuller in the Crystal Cathedral, that hour of power. Do you remember that? 
And they, they would have, he would have Norman Vincent Peale on. And he would talk about that heresy. And it creeps into what we think living by faith is. Brothers and sisters, we have to be very careful here. We still have that power of positive thinking type of faith being broadcast all the time on our radio, all the time on the Inspiration Channel, all the time. Just turn on Joel Osteen and you'll hear things like, quote, get up in the morning and tell yourself you're going to have a great day. Don't get down on yourself. You can think better of yourself. Just think about grabbing that promotion. You hear these quotes, don't you? Just thinking positively in those thoughts, you think you can sculpt your reality. Heresy. We're to live by faith, not positivity. Third, biblical faith is not nebulous. Biblical faith is not nebulous. What do I mean by that? It's not just faith in faith. I have faith. I have faith. I have faith in my faith. And my faith has faith. Faith always has an object. Faith always has an object. My family of origin, my, my father uh, is famous. He's 6'2", and, and he's famous for when he sits down, and our family kids him, he, he just literally goes limp, and he crashes down into the chair or crashes down into the, into the couch. That's how he sits down. He just trusts that Whatever's beneath him will catch him. Our faith has an object too, and that's Jesus Christ. Our faith has an object, Jesus Christ. And by faith in his life, death, and resurrection, we believe, Christians believe, we will be caught when we die to the world that looks like falling into thin air. That's why it's kind of silly. We look, we're looked at as fools for Christ, as was read earlier today, right? You believe in this person you've never seen and, and a voice that you hear. and That's part of what faith look, looks like to the world. It looks like ridiculousness. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But fourthly, and lastly, biblical faith is not a force. Faith is not a force. We are not Jedis wielding this force of faith. People totally misunderstand what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 17 when he said, I truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. People totally misunderstand that. Many think that, that that is kind of like that scene in Return of the Jedi where Luke is stuck on that planet with Yoda, remember? And the X-Wing fighter is stuck in the swamp and, and Luke tries to get it out with the Force and it comes up and then goes back down. But then Yoda has more of the Force and he wields it more deftly. And so he brings it up and puts it down onto dry ground. Do you remember that scene? That's what a lot of people think faith is. 
When Jesus used that illustration of moving mountains, he was giving an example of God's power, of his ability, that we are to fully and wholly trust in him, in his power, not our power. He was not talking about the power of my ability to have faith, but rather the power of the one in whom we place our faith. Now, what biblical faith means, and I want to put it up here on the board because I think it's important. I could say it a couple times, and those of you note-takers would get part of it. But biblical faith here in Hebrews 11.1 is a gift of God through which the spiritual world and the promises of God become as real as the physical world. Thus we begin to live our lives according to a new reality. It is a gift of God through which the spiritual world and the promises of God become as real as the physical one to the believer. Thus we begin to live our lives according to this new reality. And that's what we're going to unpack this morning. See, through the five senses, that's, that's how we, we grasp the physical world, isn't it? Yeah, I touch this pulpit by touch, one of my senses, and I go, this is real. I wake up and I smell bacon cooking. It's a wonderful thing. And the first thing I think is my wife is awesome. But then I know that there's bacon cooking, and I go down and behold, there's the bacon. I taste a rare steak, thus I know it's real. I see you, I look out and I see you in front of me, thus I know you're real. If you're a born-again Christian, you've been given, so to speak, a sixth sense, and that is faith. You've been given this by God. And through that new sense, through that faith, we become convinced of another reality. Just as real as this pulpit, just as real as the pew you're sitting in, there is another reality, a spiritual reality. So, you begin to make decisions based on that new reality. You react to circumstances based on that new reality. And our text tells us that there are two invisible realities that the born-again believer, by faith, is convinced of. And the first one is faith gives us a certitude about the future gives us a certitude about the future promises. Look again at verse 11.1. It says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The assurance of things hoped for. That assurance word has been used a couple times in Hebrews already in the Greek. Hypostasis. The most famous one is in verse 3 in chapter 1 when when. The writer of the Hebrews is talking about who Jesus is, and he says he is the exact representation of God. The ESV says he is the exact imprint of God. It's saying this Jesus is God, substantially. 
He might look like a man, but he's also God. And the word is used here again in this verse, translated assurance, to communicate that those things the Bible's described as future are real. Those things hoped for, the promises of God, are just as real as just grab the pew, grab the pew. They're just as real as that. And by faith, not touch, by faith, we're convinced of that. Just like by touch, we're convinced that this is real. Does that make sense? And so by faith, we have certitude that what the Bible tells us in the future is real. Like the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 2.12 that we will reign with Christ in the future. Genesis, uh, Re- Revelation 20 says the same thing. We will reign with Christ. We're not told a lot about what reign means, okay? We're not told a lot about that. But implicit in that promise is a complete reversal of what it's like now. That's what is is being communicated by that, reigning. In other words, the people currently at the bottom of the ladder, treated as the lowest of low, oppressed, scorned, laughed at because of their faith in Jesus, and if you're living your faith out loud, if people know you're a Christian, and you're saying the name of Jesus on a regular basis, you will be scorned. If you're sitting here and you say, well, I've never been scorned before, I've never really oppressed. Are you living your faith out loud? That's my challenge to you. But if we are living our faith out loud, you will be seen as lower, as silly. Maybe not out loud, maybe, maybe in the minds. Have you ever gotten those looks? You know, my, my pride just flares up when I get those looks and I have to go, oh, Lord, help me. I just want to crush the person. So we will reign in the future. There will be a complete reversal. And as you become convinced of this reign, it changes how you live now. It changes how you live now. It changes your reaction when people give you that look or stop inviting you to the cocktail parties or stop inviting you over or people avoid you at work. It changes your reaction when people mock you that you, you believe that there is a creator and not evolution. It's like the prince who is teased on the playground who eventually knows he's going to be king. What can they do to me? Christian maturity is not retaliating Because you know that there's going to be a complete reversal. It's okay. The sixth sense also of faith allows us to be convinced that we have an amazing inheritance in heaven. 
That inheritance is mentioned over and over again in Scripture. In 1 Peter 1.4, it says, We've been born again into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. I'm pretty sure Peter is talking about heaven here. He's not talking about a huge pile of, of cash waiting for you in heaven. He's not talking about power in heaven or, or prominence. He's talking about heaven itself. And when you have, by faith, that certitude that you have that heaven waiting for you, that heaven is real, it changes the way you live. It changes the way you live. It changes your view on retirement. I'm not going to rest now. Heaven is when I rest. It views how you grip your money. It, it takes it from a white knuckle grip to an open-handed okay. changes how you view life. I'm not going to expect comfort now. That comfort comes later. The Bible is replete with suffer now, rest later. Brothers and sisters. The sixth sense of faith also allows us to be assured, to be certain that Christ will return. Just as, as much as I believe this pulpit is made out of wood, faith gives us the certitude, the certainty, the assurance that Christ is coming back. Titus 2.13 tells us we wait for the blessed hope, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Christ is coming back. That's a promise. Promises that he'll descend from the sky, Acts 1, that every eye will see him, that he's coming as a judge the second time, that he's coming to right all the wrongs, that he's coming to balance the scales. And when we, by faith, really believe that, when we're certain of that, it makes you willing to be mocked. It makes you, it opens that door for you to live as though you are foolish. It makes you willing to be wronged for the name of Christ. It gives that couple that has been in the news the past couple years, those bakers in the West that refused to bake a cake for the gay marriage, I bet that they've had Christ's return on their mind a lot. Because it gives them the hope, the certitude that wrongs will be righted. Commentator William Lane says, Faith gives the objects of the future hope the force of present realities. Let me read that again. Faith gives the objects of future hope the force of present realities. That's what faith does. Faith just doesn't allow you to think differently. It allows you to live differently. That's why in verse 2 it says, the writer follows it up with, for by it, faith, the people of old received their commendations. You see what he's saying there? He's, he, he's teeing us up 
for the rest of the chapter. That's what chapter 11 goes on to describe. The people lived the now based on being convinced of the future. That's the, that's the refrain throughout chapter 11, isn't it? By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. They based their lives on being 100% convinced that the future promises are real. They made decisions that way. So, and many times when you make decisions based on your 100% assurance, certainty of what's going to happen in the future, you look ridiculous. You look ridiculous. Think of Abraham leaving Ur. All the power and prominence and position because he heard a voice telling him to leave and not even where to go. Or how about that same voice years later telling him, go sacrifice your son. How crazy did he look? Or think about Noah building an ark before it rained. Or think about Moses stepping away from the palace and into the mud pits with the slaves. How ridiculous did he look? It says he was looking forward to the reward. Or think of the, all the brothers and sisters who are unnamed, many of them, in chapter 11, verses 32 to 38, unnamed litany of people who accepted a harder life, endured torture, martyrdom, because they believed what God said about the future. Jan Hus was a 15th century priest. He translated the Bible into Czechoslovakian and came to believe, counter to the thought of the age, that salvation is indeed by faith alone. He's branded a heretic. In 1414, they demanded that he come before the Council of Constance. He was hauled before the council and asked to recant of his views on salvation. Huss did not. They jailed him and on July 6, 1415, he was taken to a cathedral, dressed in his priestly garments and then stripped of them one by one. Why do you think they did that? They wanted to humiliate him put him on the lowest rung of the ladder. And they asked him again to refrent, re, re, uh, repent, I mean, uh, recant one last time. And he did not. And so they tied him to a stake. And he was heard reciting the Psalms as the flames engulfed his body. That looks ridiculous to the world. Doesn't it? Just recant. Right? Just say, okay. And he goes free. Hus didn't because he was convinced that the promises were real. By faith. He was convinced that by faith that this life was not all there is. Okay. What can you do to a person who says, 
that's okay, kill this body. Because I know there's a future. What can you do to that person? Nothing. Puss was convinced by faith that Christ was coming again. That this wrong that's going on here will be righted. That's the sixth sense of faith that John Huss had that he was willing to look ridiculous now because he was convinced of the reality of later. That's the first point. Certitude about the future. The second invisible reality that only one can believe by faith is the certainty of the spiritual. The certainty of the spiritual. Hebrews 1, second half, says... Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen or unseen. Kent Hughes writes, faith is the organ by which we are enabled to see the invisible order and to see it with certainty, just as our eyes behold the physical world around us. The gift of faith gives the believer the ability to be certain of the future, but also the ability to be certain, convinced, assured, have certitude that there is a spiritual realm around us. That this is not all there is going on. You see, we're told that there is a spiritual reality that we simply cannot see. That there's more to what's going around here than meets the eye. I don't know if any of you read Frank Peretti's book in the 80s, This Present Darkness. I don't agree with everything he writes there, so don't freak out. But I think he taps into something there. The writer of Hebrews is tapping into. There's more going on here than the five senses can sense. And by faith, the believer believes that. That's what Ephesians 6 is telling us, right? We all love to memorize that. But by faith, we have to believe it. By faith, we have to believe that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's God's word. We post-enlightenment, you know, intelligent people go, that's kind of silly. This is God's word. There's a real spiritual battle going on that we do not see. And through faith, we come to believe that it's true. In fact, we become certain of it. Faith gives us the ability to believe that God, there's something behind the curtain, if you will. I don't know if you've read Second Kings lately, but there's a, a wonderful story in there. There's a wonderful narrative in there that, that describes this perfectly in Second Kings 6. If you know the story of Elisha there, he's, he's in Dothan with his servant, and Aram, the king of Aram, is out to get him. And so Aram sends his army to go get Elisha, and they surround the city of Dothan at night. And Elisha wakes up, and his servant wakes up, and they go to the city walls, and they look out, and they see they're surrounded. And so, Elisha's servant says, Oh, my Lord, 
What are we going to do? To which Elisha replies, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. What if you heard that? What if I said that right now? You go, "Mm, I'll wait the sermon out, but then I'm out of here. Servant has no idea, and sometimes neither do we. And so what does Elisha do? Elisha prays, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's real. Elisha was acting in faith. He knew there was more there than met his eye and their eye. He knew there was more going on. He knew there was a spiritual reality that the servant couldn't see. And we have to know that for certainty too, brothers and sisters. We have to know that for certainty. We have to have certitude in that. We have to have assurance in that. We have to be convinced of that. It is just as real. Does that mean that when you have a fight with your spouse, that that's spiritual warfare? Not always. Sometimes I'm just being selfish. Sometimes I'm giving in to sin. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, if you're having fights with your spouse on Sunday morning before church, I can almost guarantee you that that's spiritual warfare. Does that mean that when you lose your job, it's spiritual warfare? No. Sometimes you've done a lousy job. You deserve to be fired. Or perhaps your pride has gotten in the way. And your boss finally says, oh, forget about it. But sometimes you do a good job as though working to the Lord. You put your heart into it. You do your best. You put in extra time. And you know you're fired. That might be spiritual warfare. I remember a time in my life that I can almost look back and think absolutely something spiritual was going on there. I was over in Japan and I was teaching English in my early 20s. And I taught English there for for about a year and a half at a good company. And I decided to quit that job and get another job. In Japan in the early 90s, you could get a job teaching English if, if you could barely speak English. You know, they, they were just hiring them left and right. Conversational English. Didn't need to know anything. You just need to be able to speak English to get a good paying job. And I tried to get a job for months. And I couldn't get a job. And I'm like, what's going on here? Now, this was a time in my life when I was wandering from the Lord and, and I was starting to get mixed up in a cult. And I'm convinced that the Lord intervened there and brought me back to the United States. That there was spiritual warfare going on there. There's no other reason. No other reason. People were coming off the plane and getting jobs teaching English and I couldn't get a job. The Lord was protecting me at that time. The spiritual world exists. 
a little later in chapter 13 in Hebrews, the writer's going to tell us, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, people have, what? Shown hospitality to angels, and they didn't know it. What are we to do with that verse? If we don't believe there's a spiritual reality. Oh, well, let's just take that one and, and do the, you know, Jesus seminar. We'll just take that one out. Angels exist. We're not to put our hope in them. We're not to pray to them. We're not to elevate them. Messenger in Greek just simply means, I mean, angel in Greek simply means messenger. He's a, he's a messenger. If we don't think that angels exist, what do we do with Abraham's encounter and Jacob's encounter and Balaam's encounter and, and more to the point, Mary's encounter and Zechariah's encounter? And Joseph's encounter. The spiritual world and angels exist. You know how I apply that verse to my life? (laughs) I apply that verse to my life in the area of our church benevolence. You know, the, the Lord has blessed this church financially and we're able to help people in the community that we know and people that pass through that we don't know. And I have a pretty steady stream of people coming and asking for help. Can you help me get to Florida? Can you help me? I need lodging. Can you help me with electric? Can I help? And, you know, it could be people pulling the wool over our eyes just to get a couple hundred bucks. But I choose to think of Hebrews 13 too. No. I'm going to help this person. Who knows? If that's helpful to you and and how you are hospitable and help people, praise God. But who knows if that person who I look at and go, I think I'm getting had here, is not an angel. Look at verse 3. We can only believe by faith in what verse 3 says. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. This verse is telling us that creation was spoken into existence by God out of nothing. There was nothing and then there was something. Not creation, creation, not evolution. Out of nothing, not Big Bang. All this, created by a creator God, the world has departed from this, right? And we're looked, as, looked on as silly. You believe that God spoke and everything we see became low rung. A group of mice lived in a grand piano Beautiful music filled their world and they drew comfort and wonder from the thought that an invisible creator made the music. Then one day a mouse came back after climbing up into the piano and told everyone how the music was made. He said he saw huge wires that trembled. It was no longer a mystery. And so the mice revised their beliefs. But still a few believed in the unseen player. 
Later, another mouse explorer came and explained further. Hammers that strike the wires were now the secret. This was a more complicated theory, but it all went to show that they lived in a purely mechanical and mathematical world. The unseen player came to be thought of as a myth, though the pianist continued to play. Scientists for hundreds of years have been telling us first it's the nebula theory, then it's the tidal theory, then it's the steady state theory, now it's the Big Bang theory. Verse 3 tells us, no, it's a creator. And there was nothing. Then there was something. And faith allows you and me, if you're a believer, to believe that. Otherwise, we're in the other camp, guys. If you don't have faith, you're going, that's silly. But God spoke into, into existence all that's seen, an unseen creator into what is seen. You know what else takes faith? This table. What this table represents takes faith. This table represents the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The bread symbolically gives evidence that he lived. That Jesus lived a perfect life. That he was both God and man, perfect, 100% of each, and that he lived a sinless life. He did not sin. Not outwardly. He didn't sin. We know that. But inwardly. He didn't just do the things that he did. He just didn't obey God out of dry obedience. He wanted to do those things. He desired to do those things. And he lived a perfect life. And he earned salvation. He earned heaven. And Jesus himself said in in Matthew 5 that if, if you want to earn heaven... Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay, there are two ways to go here. You can try and work your way to heaven. But no, if you go that way, you have to be perfect. Outside and in. Or you can believe in Jesus because he lived the perfect life for you. He earned heaven for you. And instead of leaving and departing with that, with that golden ticket, he went to the cross. Because sin has to be paid for. Your sin has to be paid for, and my sin has to be paid for. And Jesus said, you know what? I'll pay for the sin. And he allowed himself to be tacked up on a tree, to be crucified, to suffer and die. The wages of sin is death. That is the law of the fire, right? can't get around it. You say and you die. And Jesus said, I'll take the penalty. I'll die. And that's what he did. And that's what this table represents. His body being torn, not ours. His blood being spilt, not ours. And he died and was buried and he rose again on the third day, bodily. And he lives today to make intercession for you and me at the Father's side. We serve a risen Savior. Some of you know that hymn.
And that's what this table represents, that gospel. And if you believe that gospel, if you put your trust in that gospel, this table is for you. This table is a table that is meant to encourage you, to nourish you spiritually, so that you can endure in this hard life. So that you can work and rest later. So that you can suffer and rest later. This table is for you. If you're here and, and you don't understand what I have just explained as the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I would, I would encourage you to let these elements pass and don't partake of them. Don't, don't eat them. Don't drink the, the juice. As Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 11, that if you don't understand this and believe this, you're actually eating and drinking judgment on yourself, not nourishment. It's not a positive thing. It'll be a negative thing for you. So do not take this. I don't know many of you and where you are in the Lord. I really don't. Many of your faces are new. And so this is a warning for you. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you, if you base your life on Jesus, if you make decisions based on Jesus, this table is for you. I'm going to ask the elders to come up, and I want to take a few minutes, a few seconds, to just consider what I've just said, and then we'll serve the elements.